I want to discuss with you this morning the topic Christ's ascension and our mission. Christ's ascension and our mission. The great commissions that are given in the first five books of the New Testament are called the Great Commission because of a British missionary named Hudson Taylor who lived from 1832 to 1905. He was the first missionary from England. And Hudson Taylor went to China and had what was known as the China Indian Mission. And he is actually the one who coined the term Great Commission. Great Commission. Well, when we think of Great Commission, we think of, well, what happened and where is it? Well, we can look and find it, first of all, in Matthew chapter 28, in verses 16 through 20. And I have wondered, because the way Matthew ends, is that then where Jesus ascended to heaven after he gave that commission? Oddly enough, we actually find out that it is not at the point of his ascension where the Matthew 28 passage is given. In the place we find this out in, in a timeline is to go over here to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'd like you to look at this because it tells us something. And then we will look at the text and focus our attention particularly on one, the ascension, and two, the mission. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when you begin at verse 6, it says, After he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, he then appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared to me also, untimely born, he appeared to me also. What we find here in this text is that we see that there are other appearances of Jesus since his resurrection prior to the ascension. The ascension on the church calendar is based upon Jesus ascending 40 days after his resurrection. Ascension Day was this last Thursday. Ascension Day was this last Thursday. It's celebrated in the church calendar that way, and some denominations around the world have a feast on that night. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's Ascension Day. Ten days after the Ascension, then, is Pentecost. That's why we've changed the color on the Lord's table from white to red. It is the giving of the Holy Spirit, the coming of to permanently take residence, and it is the rocket fuel that would launch the church. That falls exactly next Sunday. Ascension Day is always on a Thursday, 40 days after Easter. The way that we celebrate Easter is based upon the phases of the moon. Uh, it's just a day in the calendar that we specifically look at that day and I might add it is a day that is absolutely not commanded to observe in scripture but it is a great day nonetheless as we preach into the culture and into the people the word of God to highlight it and what we have done since this time is talk about the resurrection ministry of Jesus and so in conclusion to discussing it we have to then deal with the ascension but we cannot deal with the ascension alone. We have to talk about the mission of what took place. So if you looked at the Matthew 28 passage, which is what I will focus on this morning, you will see the, the, the message, the mission, and the ministry. We will go back to that in a moment, but I want you to go to Luke because I need to explain under compulsion of the Lord the significance of the ascension to those of us who believe. I don't know if you have heard a message on the ascension. I know I have not preached one. 
I don't recall hearing one. And so I will be learning with you this morning. So if you look with me properly at Luke chapter 24, this is the gospel account of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 44, as the Bible says, the grass withers and the leaves fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let us hear with joy the gospel. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalm must be fulfilled. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, This, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending you forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried into the heavens. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now go over to Acts chapter 1. And this is all the Bible says about the ascension of Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, And he said, and it says rather, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and the clouds received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. May God be glorified with the reading of his word. Almighty God, we pray now as we look to the word, we ask you to attend it with the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And Father, that you would be the preacher to our hearts, that we may learn of the necessities of understanding the ascension and how it applies to the mission you have assigned us as your sheep. All for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so, the ascension. The ascension is a very important thing. When you think about it, these men that Jesus is talking to when the ascension takes place had spent three years with Jesus intently. They had witnessed what no human being before had ever seen in the entire course of history. Their eyes peered openly at things that angels themselves longed to look for, but were unable to see themselves. Their ears heard what the ancient saints had a fierce desire to hear themselves, but yet which they spoke and preached. These men were the disciples of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They were his students. They were his companions. They were his friends. And where he went, they went. Wherever he led, they said, I'll go. He said what he said, they heard. What, they, what he did, they saw with their own eyes. They are the original eyewitnesses of the earthly ministry of the Son of God. But what I want to show you about the ascension and teach you is that we are in a far better state post-resurrection, post-ascension, post-Pentecost than the disciples ever were if you take all of their experience all 11 of them left combine it together add it and multiply it many times our state is much greater than theirs because Jesus ascended and I want to show you why remember it says in the text that they left the ascension of Jesus with great 
joy and they went and they worshipped God. That's how you know when you have succeeded at ministering to somebody. And this is specifically to the churchmen of God and the ruling elders and the teaching elders of the church. You know you have succeeded with a person when they have been evangelized, they have been enfolded into the church, we baptize them into the membership of the church, we equip them for the work of the ministry, and then they alone as church people, not ministers, church people, the saints of God, go up to the house of the Lord joyfully, worshiping, praising, enjoying God, and giving glory to Him forever. That is the mark of success in ministry. It is better to have two of those in a small church than have 10,000 with none. That is the work of the ministry. This could not happen without the ascension. So the ascension must precede the mission. And if I tarry too long, the roast will burn. So we must make haste together. Amen? One day, you see these men are going back rejoicing, but you remember there was a day in John 16 that these men heard from the lips of their teacher the worst possible news that they could hear. He'd been called somewhere else. It was time for him to leave. He told them that he was leaving. He told them the day of their intimate companionship was going to end in this world. I think about the love I have for you last week presiding over a, few, a, a, a beautiful wedding of a family that I have been fortunate to pastor for 11 years, three generations, and I'm counting on doing a fourth one, God willing. And I was sharing with the matriarch of that family, there is nothing more beautiful and more pleasurable to me as a pastor than to be a pastor of a family like that. I think, and I thank them, thank you for staying with me and letting me stay with you. And it was an honor and a joy of ministry. It took away a whole lot of pain from other things. But I think about when I left my precious friends at Post and I came here. It was not love that could keep me there. If love could have kept me there, I would have stayed. But there was the calling. But it was sad. It's still sad to this day. They still call. And even some from the church I went to had breakfast with one of them the other day. I could see in his eyes. It's still sad that I left, although he affected that leaving. But I could see it. It was God's grace. Can you imagine if I stood here this morning and told you I'm leaving? I don't know how you'd take it, finally. He was not brief. But I tell you this, I couldn't bear it. I'm a minister of the gospel. That's all I am. I am just a minister of the gospel seeking earnestly to be excellent at being ordinary. An ordinary pastor of you. The greatest danger I have, I fear for all of you that listen to sermons online is many times you're listening to sermons that are preached to preachers. The sermons you need to listen to are the sermons that are preached to congregations. Because usually the men preaching to preachers have long left the local church pulpit. And the sermons that minister to me more than anything is when the man of God in his pulpit is feeding the sheep of God, not the ministers of God. Jesus tells them, I'm leaving. I'm going. I want you to know something. He said this, and it's going to come to a hasty end. Let me give you some context here. He says this in John 16. Do you know what happens at the end of John 16? That's the upper room discourse. And that's the night he's betrayed. And it is the night that Jesus ended his public ministry on earth. Because John 17 is when he goes to the garden and prays the high priestly prayer. All the teaching is done. 
it's over. Because what comes after the resurrection is peace and, instru- and imperatives are commands. That's it. No more instruction. It's imperatives. And so what happens, verse 16, well look with me, go to John 16. Let me just read it to you quickly. John 16, verses 16 through 22. A little while and you will see me no longer. Again, a little while you will see me. They didn't know that it was that night. They didn't know that it was when they came around and collected the dishes, picked up the scraps from the new instituted Lord's Supper. They weren't going to see Him anymore. Peter, James, and John didn't know they were going to go watch Him in His contrition and in His in his absolute pain in the garden. They had no idea. Some of you have walked on those steps where Jesus walked to the garden. You've been there. And while you, are, you will see me, and so he says, a little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will not see me because I'm going to the Father. And so they were saying, what does this mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves by what I am saying? A little while and you will not see me again. A little while and you will not see me. He says, truly, truly. He says, listen up. Listen to me carefully. I say to you, you will weep and lament. You will be sad, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Write or underline that passage. That is the truth. That is the truth. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because the hour has come, but, she has, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. There's your pro-life statement. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will keep your joy from you. That, you know what that means? This joy is not going to come from the outside. It's going to come from the inside. There's nothing you can do about it. It's His joy. Amen? And just short, shortly before this enigmatic statement, Jesus had said to His disciples in John 16 verses 5 through 7. Look what he says. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you. Sorrow now has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to, listen, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the parakletos, the comforter, The Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So first of all, the first instance is this. Jesus says that their hearts will not simply be touched by sorrow and grief and disappointment, but there will be a fullness of sorrow that saturates every chamber of their heart and every fiber of their being. They will be overcome with grief and their mourning will reach the limits of human capacity all but sweating blood. But Jesus says the condition by which they will experience will only be temporary. It'll only be temporary. That sense of abandonment they may feel for a moment will give way, listen to me, to an unspeakable eternal joy. Glory to God. Jesus explained that he must leave and that it was expedient or necessary for him to go because the disciples will soon be filled with the Holy Spirit that sounds like an absolute disadvantage and Jesus, promised will, Jesus promises will turn into the advantage. And that's what we read in Acts 1, 9 and 11. Listen to what it says. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up. The clouds took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens, he went, Behold, two men stood there. Men of Galilee, why are you still looking into heaven? And Jesus, who was taken up into the heaven, will come the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And they knew, they watched Jesus leave them. And the two angels asked them why they were staring. And they turned their faces to Jerusalem 
And they went back to the temple, worshiping, glorifying, praising God. Why? They had been evangelized. They had been enfolded. They had been equipped. And now the proof in the pudding was they went to worship Him. They didn't go to church. They were the church going to worship. That's how you know when you've succeeded. That's Jesus' pattern of success. It's all revealed in the Great Commission. But in John 3.13, Jesus declared, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, and that is the Son of Man. The verse sounds difficult at first glance when we realize it's the Old Testament. Enoch ascended into heaven, and the same that he was carried there, as was Elijah on a chariot of fire, lifted him up to the heavens. So when Jesus speaks of the ascension in John chapter 3, which is just right before he says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, just three verses before that, He talks about this ascension. He is speaking of something in technical terms. And what I want you to understand is this. He is speaking in technical terms because He is referring to the Psalms of Ascent that were celebrating, were celebrated with the anointing of a king. This is Psalm 120 through 134. These are the Psalms we're reading out of the Old Testament since we've started in 122. And when Jesus says no one ascends into heaven, it is true that no one goes to heaven in the same manner for the same purpose for which he went there. But he was lifted up into the clouds of glory in order to go to his Father for the purpose of what? His coronation is king. Remember that. He ascended into heaven for His coronation as King. Just like the prayer book, the Psalms, and specifically the Psalms of Ascent speak of a coronation of a King. And so Jesus is... Now listen, this is important. His ascension is for the coronation. The work is done. Now He will be seated at the right hand of the Father, crowned in glory, unimaginable, having the name that at which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in the created universe above, in, and beneath that Jesus Christ is King. He is Lord. Kurios. Oh, they wrote it right on the cross. Here is the King of the Jews. But oh no, He's not just the King of the Jews. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what He ascended to, Johnny. I thought He did it at the cross. No, it was at the ascension. The work's done. And so He improves. Listen, what does that mean? He goes there and He sits at the right hand of the Father he exercises lordship over the universe. What else does he do? When Pentecost, he dispatches the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to the disciples, poured out it upon his church. He empowers the church for its mission and its enterprise on this earth, its gospel enterprise. And so it was necessary for him to go back up to heaven. That was the reason for the ascension. So I want to give you three. Takeaways just on the ascension for you to write down. Number one, he, he ascended to fulfill his role as the great high priest. He ascended to fulfill his role as the great high priest. Why? Because seated at the right hand of the Father, everyone look at towards me, please. The right hand is the hand of justice. And I'm not talking about social justice. I'm talking about God's justice. And Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, he is seated, actually the Greek tells us that He is seated upon the right hand of the Father. And as such, seated upon the hand that would exercise judgment, for which Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sins. 
What does He do? He knows everything about you and me. He knows everything you've done, you're doing, you're thinking now. Everything. He knows everything there is to know about you. And God the Father loves you just as much as God loves Jesus. And it is because of Jesus that the hand of God is restrained. And this is the point number one. Jesus fulfills the high priestly duty, not only making atonement for the children of God, but making intercession. And He is seated there praying and interceding for you and for me. He couldn't do that if He had not ascended. I would tell you this because Jesus is seated. That's proof the work's done. There will be a morning that is the great getting up morning. We sing about it, but it's not us that's doing the great getting up. When Jesus Christ gets up from that throne, He's coming in glory. That's going to be the great getting up. And we're going to be doing the great get on with it. We want to see Jesus and we want Him to kill, destroy our enemy, that crooked devil and his minions. That's the first thing. Number two, since He ascended, He is exercising lordship. He is exercising lordship at the right side of God over the world. There is nothing that is happening that is beyond His province, providence and His sovereign knowledge and ability. I can tell you biblically why God allowed Uvalde to happen. I can tell you from the scripture why God has allowed this country to, to slaughter 61 million children. I can tell you why God allows people that know better try to sit at the table with everyone and have a moderated position upon it. I can tell you from the Bible. I can teach you from the Bible because Jesus taught and had a sermon and an answer to why innocents were killed that were followers of Christ. And they were asked, he was asked, why did God allow that to happen? I can tell you that and I will. This is not the time. He exercises lordship over the world. He knew who would be declared the winner November 7th of 2020. He knows everything. The question that's more important that you should ask is this. Not how much does God know about everything, but how much do you know Him? I came out of a denomination and I came here with a chip on my shoulder and some of you remember it. It was, ten, it was 11 years ago and week after next that I came to Gainesville with a chip on my shoulder. I was James the Baptist. There never been one like me and there never would be. God is a Baptist and he wrote a Baptist book. Remember me saying that? Showed you the hole in my pants. Had all the right confessions. Said all the right things in my heart. Putrid putrefaction. In that very denomination that I left by God's grace eight years ago that says they're the people of the book have just totally been exposed completely exposed in the news and before the world of practicing for 25 years hiding the names of preachers and churches that molested children but they would fight tooth and nail to keep a woman out of the pulpit or to keep a Michelob light out of your hand but would not stand and put truth before consequences that there were pastors as close as Valley View name convicted of molesting children. But boy, they were people of the book. You see, some, I want to tell you something. Since this has happened, something's changed in me. It does not matter what you confess. It matters what you do. 
Jesus makes this intercession. He's at the right hand of the Father and He is over all of the world. And let me tell you what that means to, the, to you. Let me tell you what this means. Because Jesus is exercising lordship over the whole world, this has done something for you that the disciples did not have in His presence. And it is this, it has improved our condition dramatically. In our country, we have no fear of being silenced in the pulpit. And you can know, those of you that know me, know there is no fear in me of being silenced. I would rather be ejected than leave over that. The NRA is meeting this week, and of course you remember Charleston Heston, the great Moses, and he gave that speech that year at the National Rifles Association before everybody got woke and critical wake, and he gave a speech, didn't, and he said uh, four words. He held his old musket up, and he said, from these cold hands. We love that. We love that. Let me share an illustration with you. Do any of you remember, what is the movie that has the fella in it? They're, they go into Afghanistan, they all get shot up, and he's the lone survivor. Lone survivor. I do not recommend you watch it unless it's on TV. It is a hard movie. Let me tell you something that happens in Lone Survivor, and this is going to hit some of you pretty deep. In Lone Survivor, something would happen. And one of these Navy, now listen to me, this is, this is a good illustration. I had to steal it from somebody in Birmingham, Alabama. When those people were fighting, they were going up against the Taliban and all this stuff. Somebody would get shot. One of the guys would get shot in the movie. And the movie's graphic, so watch it on TV. You're going to watch it. And they asked him always two questions. Listen to me. They'd look at the wounded soldier and they'd say, have you been shot? And the soldier would reply, the Marine, the SEAL would reply, yes. But then ask the second question. Some of you that's seen the movie and really love it, you know what the second question is. The second question was, are you still in the fight? Are you still in the fight? What are you fighting for? Christ is ascended to heaven and seated in the heavenly places and has absolute sovereign control all over this world. And He's given us a mission. Are you in the fight? You're going to be wounded. If you're going to be faithful, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. If you're going to be faithful to the Lord, if you're going to seek to be righteous and to do good, you're going to get hurt. We celebrate Memorial Day today because men got hurt, paid the ultimate sacrifice. Women got hurt, paid the ultimate sacrifice, and we revere them and we honor them, and their honor matters. We know people that have purple hearts that were wounded. I pastored a man named Ted Williams in Post. He was a Marine, got three purple hearts. They sent him home and he, was, he tried to lie to stay in the fight. But when you get three purple hearts, you go home. He did three tours, got wounded every time. You couldn't keep him back. You'd never know it. They called him Uncle Ted. Sweetest man in the church. He passed out the candy at the back door. All the kids went up to Uncle Ted, had candy in his pockets. We all knew who he was. He wanted to go back, not get a, he wanted to be in the fight. He was in the fight. But today, we're worried because we wonder, has our condition improved? Oh, my friends, our condition has improved because all of these disciples that saw Jesus ascended, all but one, as I understand, or two maybe, they died terrible deaths for the gospel. Are you in the fight? Number three, because he ascended into heaven, because he ascended into heaven, he was able to send the Holy Spirit, which is the rocket fuel. The Holy Spirit never has a ministry that points you to a man. 
You can hear that from Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Robert Morris. I can go down the names, Andrew Womack, Jonathan White, uh, all these names, and it's time their names be called out. Truth before consequences. They're the enemies. The Bible talks about in John, 1 John, that come inside the church, they're the leaders of the church that twist the church from orthodoxy. Oh, you say, but James, they use the same words we use, but they don't use our dictionary. They use the words we use, but they don't use our dictionary. This is our dictionary. And so that leads me then to the mission. What did Jesus say to them? Very quickly, let me show you this, and I will finish up. I, 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 I don't have any more type notes. I have my handwritten notes uh, stained with orange juice and syrup. And so uh, let's see, we'll try to finish this in about five minutes and give you something to take away. So you see the proper, the purpose of the ascension is so that our state would be improved, and we are in an improved state. Folks, there are Christians this morning being killed because they're Christians in other places of the world. In India yesterday, the, the, uh, the Atlantic put out an article and said uh, uh, Hindu nationalism, which is a similar type of nationalism we've experienced here, but on a religious note, has almost completely wiped out Islam and Christianity. There are now 28 million Christians in a country of 1 billion people. There are 20, uh, there are 30, uh, there are 300 million Muslims and all the rest are Hindus. And they are being discriminated against. They're being forbidden to eat beef. Uh, they're being all these things. It's terrible. I don't know how long the work will go on. And it is a, and it is a government repression. But here's the difference. That's a democracy. We're a republic. In a democracy, the mob rules. And every time you hear these people that talk on TV that says it's a threat to our democracy, just remember this. We're not a democracy. We're a republic. And what a republic is, it is a nation whose foundation is the law. We don't have mob rule yet. If, if God forbid, the electoral college is done away with, then we will cease to be a republic. We will then be a democracy and there will be mob rule because there will be no representation on equal lines our country will be governed by the people in New York City and San Francisco and you think it's bad now but do we need to worry no because we have a mission and so let me show you this very quickly Jesus says to them in verse 18 of Matthew 28, watch this. Jesus came up, spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you, and I, go, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus says to them. He gives them the mission. Now, there's something you have to understand here, and I'll never forget this. When I learned it in seminary in the fall of 1997, when I first entered the seminary, when Dr. Fish told me that the, the uh, command, the imperative of this sentence is not go. The verb of action is make. I thought it was go. And remember, I didn't, know, I didn't even know what the ascension was. And they said the ascension. I was, I was raised in a church where the pastor believed what people said. Don't use any of those big words. I had no idea what the ascension was. You need a pill for that. Will that get you pregnant? What's the ascension? I didn't know. I, I was Gomer Pyle. All I knew how to do is fly airplanes. And Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me put an outline for you here. I'm going to show you what the message, what the, the mission is. I'm going to show you how it affects the message in the ministry, and I'll turn you loose. So here you go. Take your pen out. Watch this. He says, Make disciples. That is the mission. 
of all nations. How do you make a disciple? The same way Jesus did. You call people to come follow. Okay? Now I want you to understand something. You look at this, and I want you to be very careful. The mission of the church is very narrow. The mission of the church is simply to make disciples. That's the mission. The people of the church, their mission is broad. The mission of the church is given in Acts as it is here. It says, and they devoted themselves to prayer and the apostles' teaching, period. That's the mission for the church. But to the church, the Christians of the church, the laity, the believers, the followers, it says this in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. The mission of the Christian is broad. The mission of the church is narrow. My mission is much more narrow than yours as a preacher. As a Christian, it's broad like yours is. But my profession is to make disciples. Now watch this. So here's the mission. Make disciples of all nations. Now why would that matter? Well, we're going to learn about that next week in Acts 1. But that's of all nations. Blacks, whites, reds, yellow, and everything else. You follow? Ethnic. Baptizing them in the name of the Father. What is baptism? A, 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 and I love listening to Presbyterians preach this because they have to struggle with it because they use the word enfolding and enfolding means to envelop. And baptizo means to be enveloped, not showered, plunged. But, it's, but those are junior high arguments now. And so what does he say? Enfolding them. So the first thing he's doing, how do you make disciples? You've got to start with evangelism. What is evangelism? The whole counsel of God. Who God is, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and the benefits he secured for us and how we may secure them to ourselves. That's the gospel. Okay? That's the old-time religion. Starts in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, you see a picture of it in Genesis chapter 2. And it ends all the way with amen in Revelation Chapter 21, and even Genesis begins with Jesus. Light be. And what did the Bible say in John? He is the light. Light be. What is Jesus? The amen. The Bible begins with Jesus. Light be. And it ends with amen. And he's everything in between, the alpha and the omega. And so here you have this. You have make disciples. The mission of the church is to make disciples, not make converts. That's where we fell short. In the last bunch, that's where I fell short my first 15 years as a pastor in the denomination that educated me. I made converts. I didn't make disciples. I started being a disciple maker when I came here. Of all nations, so first base, go to first base, make disciples. Go to second base, enfolding them into the church, baptizing them. Number three, third base. And by the way, you do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe. Didascalia. Teaching them to observe. That's number three. That's base number three. To observe all that I have commanded you and teach, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Now he is telling this to the apostles that are hearing it because they're going to lose their life doing this. The life expectancy of prophets and preachers is not very long. And it's not very comfortable. So that is the mission. The mission's to make disciples. But let me tell you what's happening today in our churches and just listen. I want you to write down this truth because this is what I want you to take away. Our mission and our ministry controls our message. Now this is to you journey people. 
Our mission and our ministry controls the message. One reason I have found myself in trouble so many times as a preacher beyond my own ignorance, in my own sin, in my own failing, it has always gone back to this. Brother James is always on message. His problem is sometimes he kills his own message with his behavior and stuff like that. But that's one area I strive for. But I want you to listen to this. Just listen. If social justice is your mission in your church, then you will preach a social gospel. If, you, if your mission is to make your members successful in what they do, your message will be the prosperity gospel. If your mission is to have a church that has a feel-good-about-themselves mission, then they will preach a message of therapy gospel. If your mission is church growth, then, your, then the message will be a pragmatic gospel. I'll give you an example of this as an illustration. We have a mother church. You don't know this, but all of you that are Protestants have a mother church. It's the Kirk in Scotland, 1560. That's our mother church, the Church of Scotland. And it is out of that the English Reformation came. Listen to me. Out of the Church of Scotland, years ago, they came to a place in the late 80s, 1800, uh, 1908. Please listen. This is important. This is a closing illustration. They came to a great... These were people that had the Westminster Standards. They were the people that believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. They had gone through all of these difficulties and they came to the place where it was brought up that we should begin, that the Church of Scotland should begin ordaining women for the eldership and ministry. And it was opposed by men of the book. There were 1,100 ministers at that time. And they said, we cannot go about ordaining women as elders, ruling elders, and teaching elders or ministers of the gospel because there is no command in Scripture to do it. Well, they did it anyway. And the reason that was given in the 1980s or late 1970s at, a general, at the General Assembly of the Kirk in Scotland, the Church of Scotland, was given by Ian Hamilton, Dr. Ian Hamilton, who said this, the reason... We cannot ordain women to the eldership or to the ministry is because the Bible does not give us permission to do so. And number two, what will stop us from ordaining homosexuals in 20 years? They said this, ordain women if you must, keep your pulpit at all cost. That is not courageous. And so the thought was this, they want a seat at the table of power. They want a seat at the table to be able to come and affect Scotland and the church. So don't, don't rock the boat and you can have a seat at the table. I want to ask us a question. What table do we want to sit at? I'd rather sit at the Lord's table. The one that He has prepared, as the Scots would say, out in the desert where we're full of life's opprobrium. Where all those of us that were, we are cursed and banned from the hundred-some-odd-year-old church and sent into an old Montgomery Wards building to worship where the air conditioner can't decide to keep us warm or cold. We have no authentic pulpit. This is, a, this is what people use to take your keys at 
valet parking spots. That's what this is, and it's cheap. It's junk. It's not big enough either. And guess what happened? They started ordaining homosexuals after the women. And the reason they said this was because when the people rose up that said, yes, we can ordain women, but never can we ordain homosexuals, the people that said, you cannot ordain homosexuals, they responded, but you ordained women. Where is that in the Bible? It doesn't say we can't this and that. You, you broke the rules. Well, let me tell you something. I did a little investigation last night before I went to bed, and I watched the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland that was had 12 days ago. It was led by the stated clerk of the Church of Scotland, which was a woman. And the vote they were having was to no longer use the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Larger Catechism, or Confession of Faith. The very thing that made them the church. And not only that, they were voting in the very place it was written. And fortunately, they lost. But it will not be long. The Presbyterian Church in America meets at the same time the Southern Baptist Convention meets. They will be discussing whether or not to allow same-sex marriages, homosexual ministers, and all of these things and they are going to lose. And they know it. But they are, listen to me, they are still in the fight to win them graciously. Because these are men who do not preach a social gospel, a prosperity gospel, a therapy gospel, a pragmatic gospel. Let me give you one more, two more. If you are only if the mission of the church is simply nickels and noses, then you will preach a capitalistic gospel. That is the American gospel. And if you want to preach cultural transformation, brothers and sisters, that's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not cultural transformation, but if it is the mission of your church to be culturally transformative, then you will preach a culturally accommodated gospel. So what do we do? Jesus Christ has ascended to glory. Jesus Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and I knowing that we live in these days. Jesus Christ is there in heaven right now exercising lordship over the whole earth to such a degree that when He comes, no one will mistake who He is. And Jesus Christ right now has dispatched His Holy Spirit within us that gives us the inward call, the inward voice, brings to our memory that which we have learned. And so, why did He do it? To give us a mission. What was the mission He gave us? To make disciples. How do you, if your mission and ministry is to make disciples, then your message will be the whole counsel of God.